If you would turn with me in your copies of God's Word to Acts chapter 11. Today we're just going to be looking at one verse, verse 18 of Acts 11. This is the final verse of the narrative that began all the way back at the beginning of Acts chapter 10, that narrative involving Cornelius, the Roman centurion, and the apostle Peter, and the vision of the giant sheet being lowered from heaven, filled with all kinds of beasts and birds and critters. It's a well-known text. It's a massively important text, because as I've said before, this is our story. I'm not familiar that if, of anyone in this room coming from a Jewish heritage. And so this is our story, how the Gentiles uh, were brought in. The story tells how the Gentiles received the word of God, how they came to faith, how they were brought into the people of God. And we see here the gospel going beyond Jerusalem and beyond Samaria and Judea and going to the end of the earth. And this final verse is really the bow on top of the whole story. And it helps us to understand something central, not only in the conversion of Cornelius and, and his household, but in our own conversion, in our own living of the Christian life. And funnily enough, this, this bow that we have on the story isn't even spoken by Cornelius or Peter. It's spoken by the critics back in Jerusalem. They're upset, uh, you remember, because Peter has broken their traditions. He's violated normal practices. He has entered a Gentile home, and not only that, he has eaten with them. And they criticize Peter for this. They aren't happy. And then last week we saw Peter's response to the criticism. And I'll give my paraphrase. Peter responds, he says, I I mean, what do you want me to say? God clearly spoke to me and told me to go with them. God showed me a vision. He told me to not call unclean what he has made clean. And then in his providence, he lined everything up perfectly. These men uh, that he sent arrived precisely uh, when my vision ended. And I had to be obedient to his word. And so I went with them and not I by myself, but there were also six brothers who came from Joppa. And if you have any questions at all, feel free to ask them, and they can testify. They can serve as witnesses. And then Peter continues, when, when we arrived, they told me to preach the word that God commanded. They didn't tell me the message that they wanted preached. They didn't ask me to tickle their ears. They said, Peter, preach what God has commanded. And so I did. And while I was speaking, the Holy Spirit fell, and it filled everyone in the house. Peter understood their hesitation when he was told to eat uh, from one of those critters in the sheet. He He was repulsed. He understands their hesitation, and yet 
Peter has to answer. Listen, if you're going to criticize someone, criticize the Father in heaven because he is the one who has done this. It's not me. He is the one who has done this. He gave the Holy Spirit to the Gentiles. And who was I to stand in his way? So that's the response Peter gives. The critics complain. He responds. And then we see the critics' reaction. We see it in verse 18. And we'll read it in a moment. But it is so good. What would we normally expect? You have a group of people who are criticizing a leader. That group of people, their criticism is proved unfounded. They're on the wrong side of the argument. What would we normally expect? Them to dig in their heels, harden their wills, and begin to scheme about how to make the minister's life difficult so that he'll leave and go somewhere else. That's what we would normally expect. But that's not what happens. We see that by God's grace, they glorify the Lord. And then they confess this foundational Christian doctrine. It's a doctrine we're going to look at uh, pretty much this entire sermon Um, It's the doctrine of repentance, and more specifically, repentance unto life. Or as it's uh, said in verse 18, repentance that leads to life. Now, that's something that sounds important, doesn't it? As as believers, that's something we, we should want to understand. I want to understand, I want to know what it means to possess repentance that leads to life. So that's where we're going today. A deep dive into repentance uh, so that, Lord willing, not only would our souls be nourished and strengthened, but that we would have a better understanding of the work of grace that God does in the lives of his people. So let's pray and then we'll read our text. Father God, even in one verse of your word, there is power beyond imagination. So would you use your word... Would you open the eyes and ears of your people to it? uh, That in hearing it, uh, we would also glorify you. And that it might be used in our lives to strengthen and to correct and to train us in all righteousness. We ask that you would send your spirit to work just as he worked in the household of Cornelius. We ask that Your spirit would come and work among us and work in our hearts and turn our hearts to you. We ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Our text is Acts chapter 11, verse 18. When they heard these things, they fell silent and they glorified God, saying, Then to the Gentiles also... God has granted repentance that leads to life. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. So before we take the deep dive into repentance, I just want to briefly look at the first half of this verse. What's the first thing we see? 
the critics fall silent. Peter gives his explanation, I think starting around verse 3 or verse 4, all the way to verse 17. And his explanation satisfies them. They're silent. And isn't this a work of the Lord itself? We can see the obvious work of the Lord and the Holy Spirit falling on Cornelius' house. But but what about this? Just... Again, just from our knowledge of other human beings, how often do we see this? You see, God is not only working in the Gentiles' hearts, but he's working in the hearts of these traditional put-together Christians there in Jerusalem. Their criticisms are proved baseless. They see they're on the wrong side of the argument, and they don't die on the hill They don't run Peter off. Their minds change. This is an incredible work of God. The very word that they're about to speak, the word of repentance, is being manifested in their own lives. So God is not only granting the Gentiles repentance, he's granting these critics repentance. They hear Peter's explanation, they fall silent. For a time. And then we're told that silence is broken and they glorified God. So criticisms of Peter turn into praise of the Almighty. And why are they glorifying God? Well, we'll see in their explanation. They're glorifying God because they have come to understand that He is the one who has done all of this. This is not a Gentile attempt to infiltrate the church. This is not Peter having a wild hair and going rogue and just doing his own thing. No, God is the one doing this. And Peter is just the instrument. He is just the tool that God has used, and they're glorifying God because they understand He is the one who has acted here. And we see that in the thing they say next. So Peter's critics are silenced. They see the hand of God at work. They glorify Him, and then they speak these words. Then to the Gentiles also, God has granted repentance that leads to life. So this is where we're going to spend the rest of our time talking about repentance. And we'll begin by giving a simple definition. Now, we're going to tease this out and have a lot of fun with it. But a very simple definition of repentance is turning from sin to God. Turning from sin to God. I, I used to find my pleasure in my sin. And I used to find my identity and my community in my sin. I used to cope through my sin or I used my sin to help me cope where I found joy in sin. I found my security in my sin. But now the Holy Spirit has convicted me and showed me that all of these things are sins and he has pointed me to the true object of worship. And I've turned to him, the Lord who is 
merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. That's repentance. Seeing your sin, turning from it to the Lord. Now, what happens when we turn? Or maybe a better way to ask it is, and this I guess, a leading question. What are we abandoning when we turn from sin to God? Well, we're abandoning past personal spirituality that we may have trusted in. Okay? Um, I mean, human beings are very spiritual people. We're, we're spiritual people in many, many different ways, and we trust in that spirituality. That we put our hope and our, our comfort in it. And so, I mean, some places in, in the country, not as much in northeast Mississippi, uh, but some places you've got the example of, of the influence of the New Age and crystals. And I, maybe I used to trust in crystals. That's going to be abandoned when you come to faith. The, uh, the personal spirituality that we most likely see in our context would be, well, I said a prayer at a revival 50 years ago. Well, what are you trusting in? Well, I'm trusting in that prayer that I said at a revival 50 years ago. You're going to have to abandon that and trust in him, not your prayer. Any previous experiences you've had that you're placing your trust in, we're abandoning those. You have to abandon even your own morality and your own good works not saying that we become immoral people, but all the good works that you have placed your trust in as to why God would accept you, we turn from those. And this turning involves our whole person. Heart, soul, mind, our whole person. We turn to God and trust in Him and the finished work of Jesus on our behalf. Michael Horton, in his Systematic Theology, he, he says this, quote, The whole self must be turned away both from self-trust and from the autonomy that demands final say as to what we will believe, whom we will trust, and how we will live. So both trusting in self and this idea of autonomy that we decide what we believe, who we will trust in, and how we will live. We've got to let that go. And we see that in repentance. We turn to the Lord God Almighty and we come under His authority. Now, some of you may already know the Greek word for repentance. It's the word metanoia. And metanoia refers to a change of heart, mind, or will. And particularly in repentance, what we see are four main things in which our heart uh, or our understanding changes. They're easy to remember. God, self, sin, and righteousness. My understanding of God, self, sin, and righteousness all changes. I'll I'll give you an example. In, In repentance, we come to understand God rightly, that He is holy, He is just, He is the Lord of all. We are living in His universe, and He is the center of it. 
We have a right view of God. We also have a right view of self. That we are treasonous rebels and have been so since Genesis 3. We have sinned against God and we deserve his wrath. So that's the view of self. And then uh, number three, sin. We see sin as our biggest problem. Our biggest problem is not uh, the government. It's not our job. It's not uh, a spouse or a family member or a neighbor. Our biggest problem is our sin. I think it was Calvin who said, indwelling sin is our greatest burden, sorrow, and trouble. When you think of your sin, do you think of it as your greatest burden, sorrow, and trouble? It's what a right understanding of sin produces. That I need cleansing. I need pardon. I can't do this on my own. I need him to wash me. And this is more than simply being remorseful. Unbelievers can do something and then regret doing it and say, well, I I shouldn't have done that. It's more than simply being remorseful over an action or something that we should not have said. It is... It is, our, again, our whole self being uh, offended and repulsed by this natural gravitation we have to sin and death. That I have, by nature, a, nat- a natural gravitation to sin and death, and that offends me because it offends my Lord. So our view of God, our view of self, our view of sin, and lastly, our view of righteousness. There's this worldly view that God just doesn't want you to be happy. And so he's given you these rules to make you unhappy. And it couldn't be further from the truth. The most joy in life, the most satisfaction in life, comes from obedience to God and his commands. If we're living in the creator's world, we should live in the way in which he intended. And in doing so, and Pursuing holiness and obedience to God, there is joy. And, and more than that, we, we see ourselves as covered in the righteousness of Christ. That he not only has washed us, but he has clothed us in his righteousness. And so as a response to that, we strive for obedience. So those are four things that will change our view of God, self, sin, and righteousness. But there's... An interesting thing here concerning repentance, and it's that faith and repentance are two sides of one coin. I want you to think of the example of David, probably the most famous example of repentance in Scripture. Uh, Psalm 51, you can read it this afternoon. But this is David's psalm of repentance after sinning against Bathsheba and her husband Uriah and ultimately the Lord. You can read Psalm 51 and you'll see that David's words evidence godly sorrow. He is grieved over his sin. And he says something astounding that might throw us for a loop at first, but he recognizes that God is the most offended party because of his sin. And then David confesses his own condemnation. He even goes so far to say that it wasn't 
only his actions with Bathsheba and Uriah that condemn him. But more than that, I've been troubled since my conception. He says, in iniquity I was conceived. It's not just my sinful thoughts and actions, but also my sin nature. King David understands sin, guilt, and condemnation, but you can read Psalm 51 and see that he does not stay there. He confesses faith in his God. Psalm 51 ends in the statement, A broken spirit and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. In Psalm 51, David is confronted with his sin, but he also looks to God in faith. Now here's the difference between, one of the differences between believers and unbelievers is what we do when we are confronted with the reality of our sin. For the unbeliever, when he or she is confronted with the reality of sin, there may be a just dive into hopeless despair that could end with self-harm, feelings of shame and, and guilt that lead to self, self-harm. Or, or, on the other hand, the confrontation of guilt and sin might cause their hearts to become harder, more calloused, a, a seared conscience. Something will happen and you'll think, how in the world could that person do that? Well, time after time of their conscience being seared. But we see with the believer, when the believer is confronted with their guilt and their sin and the just uh, condemnation their sin deserves, how does the believer respond? In faith. Paul gives us an example of this in 2 Corinthians 7.10. He says, For godly grief produces repentance that leads to salvation without regret. Whereas worldly grief produces death. So godly grief produces repentance that leads to salvation without regret. Whereas worldly grief produces death. Paul also writes something similar in Romans 2. Reminding the church there that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance. And we see this in Psalm 51 with David. He's honest about his sin, and then he looks outside of himself to the God of his salvation. So we see this connection here between faith and repentance. And we're reminded that we can't have one without the other. You can't have faith without repentance, and you can't have repentance without faith. And and it might be helpful here, I I want to define saving faith for you. I'm going to give you the favorite definition that I've discovered of what is saving faith. This comes from Westminster Seminary's uh, John Murray. He says, quote, faith is a whole-souled movement of self-commitment to Christ for salvation from sin and its consequences, end quote. So a whole soul, my entire soul is moving uh, to self-commitment, committing myself to Christ for salvation from sin and its consequences. 
So just as repentance is the whole self turning from sin unto God, saving faith is the whole self uh, committing oneself to Jesus alone for salvation from sin and its consequences. And you can't have one without the other. James tells us faith without works is dead. Uh, Faith without repentance does not exist. It is a cheap faith, a worthless faith. And, And repentance without saving faith is just leaves you under the law and under despair. Saving faith is faith in Christ from salvation. And, and this is interesting. When we think about saving faith, uh, I read this this week, that saving faith is not knowing, oh, I'm, I am God's child. It's not, oh, he... He, he loves me. I am, I am the object of his special affection. I am, I am his, I'm one of his elect. That, that's not saving faith. Saving faith is, I am a sinner who is looking to Jesus Christ for salvation. You can see this connection with faith and repentance. A saving faith is a penitent faith. And repentance that leads to life is believing repentance. We confess our sin, turn from it, and then look in faith to Jesus Christ. We, we are condemned by the law and then taste the sweetness of the gospel. Faith and repentance. You can't have one without the other. And another thing we need to note is that repentance is not something we outgrow. I mentioned this before. Uh, Martin Luther on... October 31st, 1517, posted his 95 Theses to the church door in Wittenberg, and the very first of those theses was this. When our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said, Repent, in Matthew 4-7, He willed the entire life of believers to be one of repentance. So repentance then is not just something experienced at the moment of conversion, Repentance as well as faith is something that continues the whole of the Christian life. Over and over again, we are condemned by the law. We are reminded of our guilt. And then we are reminded of the finished work of Jesus freely credited to us. John Murray says again, quote, Just as faith is not only a momentary act, but an abiding attitude of trust and confidence directed to the Savior. So repentance results in constant contrition. Christ's blood is the laver of initial cleansing, but it is also the fountain to which the believer must continuously return. It is at the cross of Christ that repentance has its beginning. It is at the cross of Christ that it must continue to pour out its heart, and the tears of confession and contrition. That's what Martin Luther meant when he said that all of the Christian life is one of repentance. We're reminded as well that repentance is why Jesus came. You can do a, do a word uh, study on repentance. Look at the Gospels. You'll see John the Baptist coming, preparing the way, preaching a baptism of repentance. Telling the people to bear fruit in keeping with repentance. 
You'll see Jesus in Luke 5 eating in a house full of tax collectors and the Pharisees are astonished and wanted to know why on earth he would be eating with them. And Jesus says, well, those who are well have no need for for a physician, but those who are sick, I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Then after his resurrection, Jesus appears to the disciples in Luke 24. He shows them his hands and his feet, and then he opens their mind to understand the scriptures. And he says, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed to all nations. Later on in Acts, Peter is preaching to the crowd at Pentecost, and they're cut to the heart, and they say, What shall we do? And what does Peter say? Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ. And on and on we can go, but we see that the gospel is a gospel of repentance. I'm going to give you an application here. I I believe our... Our problem when it comes to the thing of God so often is just having a low view or too small a view of, of God, of his work, of his grace, of the obscenity of our sin and our, our view of repentance. Our view of repentance can be too low. It can be too narrow. We, we can think repentance is simply, well, there are a few things in my life I need to clean up. There are a few habits that I need to kick I need to get back on the the right track, you know, straighten up and fly right. But if that's merely our view of repentance, that is far too weak. One of the guys I was studying this week, he made the comment that repentance is not only modifying a few convictions here and there, but, but it's realizing that our whole interpretation of reality, again, of God, self, sin, our relation to God and the world, all of it is misguided. Repentance is not finding our way back to the straight and narrow. You know, we wander off a little bit, but then come back to the straight and narrow. He says, no. Repentance is acknowledging that we are not and have never been on the straight and narrow. We've never been in the vicinity of the straight and narrow. It's a movement of the whole person from trusting in sin and self and turning to the Lord. Final thing to think about. Where does repentance come from? What is its source of origination? Is it something we create? Does it come from within ourselves? Or does it come from outside of us? Well, when we look at our text, what do Peter's critics say? Then to the Gentiles also, God has granted repentance that leads to life. So to Cornelius and his household... God granted them repentance that led to life. That word that you could say the word granted there, you could say has given. It's the same word 
uh, that's used in John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. It's the same word. You could say to the nations, to the Gentiles, God has given repentance. If you look in our shorter catechism, there's a question, what is repentance to life? The Shorter Catechism says that repentance unto life is a saving grace by which a sinner, out of a true sense of his sin and understanding of the mercy of God in Christ, does with grief and hatred of his sin turn from it to God with full intention of and endeavor after new obedience. That's a, it's a loaded answer, but we've talked about most of it already. We, we've talked about a, a sinner out of a true sense of his sin and guilt and faith in the mercy of God. The sinner is grieved over his sin, hates his sin, turns from it to God, strives towards obedience and holiness. But there's something at the very beginning of that answer that we haven't talked about as much today. The catechism says that repentance unto life is a saving grace. What does it mean for something to be a saving grace? Well, a grace, if repentance is a grace, it means that it is a gift. It is not something we deserve. It's not something we earn or merit. There is nothing that we can do to bring it about. If there was something we could do to bring it about, it would not be grace. It would just be pay for what we've done. But the confession reminds us that repentance unto life is a saving grace, which means the fact that a Christian repents and turns from sin to God is a gift of God in of itself. I mean, how often are we reminded? I mean, this would be a wonderful practice. When we wake up in the morning and we're, we're saying our daily prayers to say, Lord, for the very fact that I believe in your son and I'm trusting in him for my salvation, thank you. This is not something I came to on my own. This is not something I cultivated within myself. Thank you for giving to me the gift of repentance. Just as God brings about new life and causes a person to be born again, he also grants or gives to the believer faith and repentance. Now, there, there are a lot of folks uh, who will unintentionally limit God's grace in some way and say, you know, God just puts you in a position where you can accept Him or reject Him. Uh, he puts you in the position where you are able to choose life or choose death, but ultimately the decision is up to you. But what we see here involving the biblical teaching of repentance is that it is grace from start to finish. It's based on God's working and his power from start to finish. He gives us new life. He causes us to be born again. He gives to his people freely faith and repentance. The the understanding that I am a sinner and I'm resting in Jesus alone for my salvation. That is something only God can originate. We see that he is a big and wonderful God. He is not passively sitting by hoping that we make a wise choice. 
He's mighty to save, and he saves his own to the end. You know, these, uh, when it comes to statements of the bigness and the majesty and the glory of God, there's uh, not many people better than John Piper to speak on that subject. And I love the grand, soaring ways in which Piper describes the Lord. And he says this, God does more in our conversion than make us able to use our wills to believe or not believe. God overcomes all our resistance. He opens the eyes of our heart. He makes Christ so real and so beautiful and so compelling that our will gladly embraces Christ as our Savior and Lord and treasure. Our rebellion and blindness is overcome so that we are drawn triumphantly by the beauty of Christ to embrace what is true. Being overcome by the beauty of Christ to embrace what is true. That is something our God does. And I don't want to give you, I don't want to only give you Piper's words. I want to read uh, some words from the Apostle Paul. This comes from Ephesians 2. This Ephesians 2, 1 through 10 is, it is a glorious passage. Uh, I, I don't know if there's a better summary of the Christian life from, from sin to uh, good works. It, it, it is amazing. Ephesians, 1, uh, Ephesians 2, starting in verse 1. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love which, with, uh, with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved, and seated us up with him. And raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Jesus Christ. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So you see, dead in trespasses and sins, by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind, but God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive, raised us up, and seated us with him in the heavenly places. It's amazing amazing the the fullness of the grace of God that is ours by faith in Christ you can see why Peter's critics are glorifying God they aren't glorifying Peter they aren't praising Cornelius for his faith they aren't praising Cornelius for his his choice they're glorifying God because he's done this 
one final application for you to go home with, and, and we're done. There's a very similar passage in 2 Timothy 2, 24 through 26. Uh, I'll, I'll read it briefly to you. And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth. And they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. At 2 Timothy 2, we have this similar language of God may grant them repentance. He may, he may not. And we're reminded that God does not owe this to anyone. Repentance is not a right, it is a grace that is given freely. If someone's sin causes them to be ensnared by the devil, God is not forced to rescue them by granting repentance. He may, but we aren't allowed to demand it. But here's what I want you to see at the end. What Paul is writing to Timothy here is reminding them that God may use Timothy. In the same way that God used Peter and sent Peter as an instrument to go to Cornelius and to go to his household and to preach his message of salvation to them, God will use you. He he may use you to bring someone to repentance. This is why it's important that as his servants, we must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone. We need to be able to teach. We need to understand what we believe and why we believe it and be able to, to verbalize it. We must patiently endure evil. We, we correct opponents with gentleness. Why? Because God may use us. We may be the means through which he grants someone repentance. What a glorious honor That would be to be his servant, to be the vessel used to bring life where there's darkness. Let's pray. Father God, we acknowledge that you are God and you are our salvation. Salvation belongs to you. Father, in your mercy and your kindness, and your love for your people. You have not only raised us up and given us new life when we were dead, but you've seated us with your Son. Father, we know that just as sure as the Lord Jesus Christ is sitting on his throne today, his people can never be separated from him. His death was our death, His resurrection, our resurrection. And our trust is not in ourself or our merit or our works or even our repentance, but our trust is in Him and His work on our behalf. Father, would you continually help us not only to see our sin and to convict us of it, but continually show us the cross. Direct our eyes to Jesus as the object of our faith. That we would be quick to confess our sin and to flee to him. Would you do this by your spirit? We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.